You're listening to the Resurgent ATL Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, everybody. It's still morning, right? Yeah, just just barely. It's so good to be with you guys this morning. Worship was great. I was telling Stephen, it just the hour just flew by. It was it was really awesome. So it's, it's amazing to be here with you guys. It's an honor to be able to speak. Uh, just getting to meet the Olivers this morning, and uh, just loving you guys as I'm getting to know you today. It's it's great to be here with you. Um, I was praying about being with you, and uh, S- Stephen, I did have a, a word for you. I wanted to share. Um, and just to, so that everyone could hear it and you guys could discern if it was the Lord or not, <laughs> um, just so the leaders, everybody could hear it. But as I was um, praying for, for this time, Stephen, I just saw this picture of you and you were just like walking and, the, and you, you were just steadily walking, but the scenes around you were changing as you walked and it was like different seasons. So like you were going through like a forest at one point and then you're like, it was like mountains and it was snow everywhere and uh, then there were like these open fields with flowers and it was kind of like it was springtime. And every time it changed, um, you had you had different clothes on, different um, outfit and you had different tools with you every every time the, the season would change. And um, and it just felt like it represented different seasons of your life that God was taking you through. You had to have new skills, a different wardrobe, different tools, and you had to be able to adapt from season to season. And so I felt like that was just kind of the journey God's had, had you on. And um, each one has prepared you to endure, but also um, is also preparing you to help others endure those same kinds of seasons and go through those same kind of things. So God said he's building endurance in you, and he said you'll need it. <laughs> but he said you will have it. And he will be with you to the end, and he'll be faithful with you through every season. And so, and I'll, he also reminded me of something I've shared with you before, that just that I do feel like there's an apostolic calling on your life. And um, I believe that there's going to be um, ways that he's called you to not just serve this community, but the body of Christ in other ways. And so um, he's going to give you blueprints and ideas of things for ministry, some things that I know are already in your heart probably, and some things that you'll continue to be in your heart. There'll be times you go to the nations. Um, and so that may be interesting for even for resurgent, but I, I felt like it was important for me to submit that to you guys and just say there's going to be times Stephen's called to serve even beyond this church as he's planted here um, to serve the rest of the body of Christ. So, amen. Cool. Um, love you, man. <laughs> it's great to be here. Um, well, yeah, like Stephen said, I've been involved in worship and prayer ministry uh, full time for fif- 15 years sort of even before that, maybe 20 years or so in different leadership capacities, leading worship, leading prayer ministries, teaching about prayer and worship, writing a book about prayer and worship, doing podcasts about prayer and worship, trying to mobilize people and invite people to minister to the Lord and to be in his presence and to, and to pursue him. I do believe God's presence changes everything and, uh, and that as we pursue him and he comes, uh, things change, and that's what we, that's what we all want. His kingdom comes, and so at the moment, I'm involved in a ministry called Awaken the Dawn, and we're doing tent gatherings all over America. I've been on staff with Awaken the Dawn for the last three years. Over the last five, almost six years, we've we've seen about seven or eight hundred tent gatherings all over America, and each of these tents host nonstop worship and prayer for at least 24 hours, sometimes longer. 
And there's always some component of outreach and evangelism, whether it's people coming to tents or people going out, teams going out from the tents into the streets to minister to people, worship, prayer, and the proclamation of the gospel, supernatural ministry out in the streets. We've seen, I could go on and on and probably take the whole time and just tell testimonies and stories of amazing things we've seen. And so some of those are events we host as Awaken the Dawn, and some of them are part of a grassroots initiative we have called Tent America where we just invite other people and we equip them and resource them to host their own tents in their own cities. And so that's sort of the, the part I'm a part of. And I'm also involved in our local church in Greenville, North Carolina. So that's where I'm from. My wife and our four kids are there. The church is called Open Door Church. And I'm the prayer coordinator there part-time. And we are trying to grow prayer. Our senior pastor, this is my childhood church. God sent us back there a couple years ago, actually. And uh, the lead pastor there, who's, who's been a friend of mine for a long time, uh, the end of 2021, uh, God said, um, gave him a word, said, you've built a house of worship, but I also want you to build a house of prayer. So we are trying to figure out what that means, to not only be a house of worship, but also be a house of prayer, because Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. And so we're starting prayer meetings and trying to disciple and equip and figure out what that means uh, in, a, in a fairly large church there in Greenville. So that's sort of what I'm up to. I, with Awaken the Dawn, I do a podcast and uh, a number of other things. But yeah, today I, I want to sort of share with you, because I've been doing this prayer and worship ministry for 15 years, I've been talking to Stephen. I know his heart's burning for worship and prayer and uh, feels like the Lord's inviting resurgent to, to press into prayer more. I was on your website, I saw extravagant worship is one of your values, and I was like, yes, my people, this is great. You know, you guys would take this time in the morning and, and take 45 minutes to an hour and just worship on a Sunday morning. Isn't that cool? That's, that's not actually common, and it's a huge blessing you guys have here to be able to do that. Um, and I just honor you guys for being willing to take the time to do that. It's really amazing. But what I found over the years is that the enemy doesn't like it. <laughs> and so he will try to come, and whether it's push back against corporate people or individually, to, he'll, he'll try to push back against our intimacy with Jesus and our, our time spent with him in, in worship and prayer. And, and a couple of weeks ago, as I was, I was praying, I felt like God just pulled a whole bunch of things together from my 15-plus years and, and, and showed me five lies that the enemy is bringing against the people of God that tries to pull them away from worship and prayer. Five lies about worship and prayer. And I felt like the timing of that me, with me coming here was that I needed to, to share some of that with you guys. Expose what the enemy might be trying to bring against you and bring the truth of God's word to go against those lies, right? That's what Jesus did. When the enemy came against him in the desert, uh, he brought the word of God. So is that cool? So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So Jesus, we love you. Your amazing Holy Spirit, would you bring revelation and understanding to our hearts through your word this morning? Lord, would you expose lies of the enemy? Holy Spirit, you are, Jesus said that you are the spirit of truth and you would guide us into all truth. So we pray that you would come and bring truth and bring truth that sets us free. God, help us to see what's true about you, what's true about your heart, what's true about who we are in you. God, so that we can be all that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm just going to share these five with you. Each one could be its own sermon, and so um, obviously we're not going to do all that. But we'll touch on, e touch on some of these, maybe some 
a little bit more than others. But number one, the lie is that extravagant worship is a waste. Number two, that intercession is striving. Number three, that prayer should always be private. Number four, that repetition is religious. And number five, that too much worship and prayer hinders evangelism. So I have, I have seen the enemy come against me, my own heart, my own mind, my friends, my communities, uh, and try to uh, bring these lies. And I just want to go after these with the word of God. And so this is a lot of Bible, and I don't apologize. Do you guys like the Bible? Okay. So when I teach, I just, I just share a lot of scripture. And so let's start with the extravagant worship and uh, this idea that the, the lie that extravagant worship is wasteful. And I, and I know that you guys see a value for this. So in many ways, this is just going to be an encourage, confirmation, I think, and just encouragement to stay, with, stay steady with what you guys are already pressing into here. But uh, if you have your Bible, you can go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 is kind of the main passage I want to look at for this. But the truth is... So I'm exposing the lie, but I want to bring the truth, right? The truth is that extravagant worship is beautiful to Jesus. Extravagant worship is beautiful to Jesus. So when I first kind of launched into some worship and prayer ministry, I was only like 18 years old, and I'd had this encounter with God at a summer camp. And that's how I start my book, uh, David's Tabernacle. I have a few of them somewhere. And so, yeah, yeah, so promo, yeah. David's Tabernacle, how God's presence changes everything. So um, I opened the first chapter with this story of an uh, encounter I had with God at a youth camp when I was 18 years old, um, right after graduating high school. But I came home and I started, I wanted to do something. <laughs> I was like, I want to do what we did at camp, which was worship for long hours and see the power of God touch students' lives as we come together around him. And so I, I had this vision to do worship, Friday night worship nights. I was like, let's do two hours. Let's get all, I want to invite all my friends, all these different youth groups, and let's just worship God for two hours and see what he does if we just give space for him to come and move among us. And I literally had mentors of mine, leaders of my life go, that's a little bit too much. <laughs> two hours of worship every week? Like, maybe you could just do one hour every week, or maybe you could do two hours once a month or something like that. And I said, no, I feel like we got to do it every week. And they're like, I think two hours is too long. Um, they didn't say I couldn't do it, but they were just <laughs> urging me not to. But I, like, had this thing in my heart, like, let's try it, you know. And so we did, and we started doing these Friday night meetings, and it started with 50 or so, and then kind of, you know, grew to 100-plus kids showing up on these Friday nights. And God began to move powerfully. Students were up front weeping, repenting of sin. Demons were coming out. Kids were getting saved, and we got to the point where two hours was not enough, and sometimes we would linger for three hours or more uh, as, you know, kids would just be laying on the floor just in the presence of God. And, um, and so, I, but I got this pushback, you know, this like two hours, that seems like a lot. And now we're doing things like 24-hour <laughs> worship weekends, and there's places that are doing, uh, I was just actually at Gate City Church up in Lawrenceville, uh, a couple of days ago where they have worship going literally 24 hours a day nonstop up there. So two hours doesn't seem quite as crazy as it used to 20 years ago. But uh, at the time, it was like two hours of worship. This is wild. And then we did three hours of worship. But I got some pushback. And my experience is extravagant worship 
there is always resistance to it. Uh, There's always resistance. I had, um, you know, we were getting kids from all these different youth groups, and I even had a youth pastor call me up and be like, hey, we do stuff with our youth on Friday night, so you need to, we don't want our kids coming to your thing, and you need to stop inviting them. And I was like, I'm not inviting them. Kids, other kids are inviting them. And I'm like this 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid going, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never led anything. I just want to worship Jesus and get all my friends here. And, like, you know, I want camp to never end because I've experienced God's presence. And it's amazing. It changed my life. And I want other people to experience that too. But uh, this, is, this is, in my experience, common. And, and you see multiple biblical examples of this. And this Matthew 26 passage is a great example of this. So starting at verse 6. It says, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Boom, there it is. There's the lie. Why this waste? That's the accusation. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. There's the truth. She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Why this waste? And I'm telling you, you guys are here in Atlanta. I'm in the South, also in North Carolina. And really, most of America is, is um, oppressed by a religious spirit. But it's really strong in the South. And the religious spirit does not like extravagant expressions of worship and, and will push back hard against creativity and spontaneity and being led by the Holy Spirit and extravagant pursuit of God and revival and, um, and we'll push back with fear, and we'll, and we'll try to shut it down and get us back in same old, same old mode. And, um, and, and I believe that's, that's what you see here. It's like, oh, what, why, why this waste? And I, and I believe if you guys haven't felt it or heard it yet, you will feel the accusation of why this waste? What are you doing? Why are you taking that long in worship? Maybe more people would show up if you shortened your worship time a little bit or something. You know, like whatever the lie may be. But the enemy comes, why this waste? And Jesus defends and says, what she has done is a beautiful thing to me. I want to encourage you guys, resurgent, what you're doing is a beautiful thing to Jesus. As you guys pour your heart out to him, as you pursue his presence, he says, it is a beautiful thing. And, um, you know, no one, no one gets to the end of their life and says, you know, I'm, I'm about to die, but, you know, I just wish I hadn't spent so much time worshiping Jesus. People do have regrets, right? They say, God, I wish I hadn't, you know, neglected my family to try to work so hard and, and get that raise. Or I wish I hadn't gotten so caught up in the ministry grind that I, you know, neglected intimacy with Jesus. And so th- those kinds of things are real. Here's what I found this recently again. And this is what Billy Graham said, 92 years old. So towards the end of his life, someone asked him, what would you do differently? What, you know, sort of what are your regrets? Here's what he said. He said, I would study more. I would pray more, travel less, take less speaking engagements. I took too many of them in too many places around the world. If I had to do it over again, 
I'd spend more time in meditation and prayer and just telling the Lord how much I love him and adore him. And I'm looking forward to the time that we're going to spend together for eternity. Wow. (laughs) I read that and I was like, oh my gosh, Jesus. Help us to learn from the wisdom of those who have gone before of not being lured by the things of this world, but the wisdom. He's saying, I just wish I had just spent more time with Jesus just telling him I love him. And so ever since I saw this again, I've just really tried, like in my prayer times, to just make sure I stop and just go, Jesus, I love you. (laughs) Jesus, I love you. You know, we're not trying to get something from you right now. Just Jesus, I just enjoy you. I just love you. And so I believe it's wisdom. I believe extravagant worship is wisdom. It's wise. It's a responsible thing to do. (laughs) Is to spend long amounts of time with Jesus in his presence, ministering to him, worshiping him, and enjoying him. And there's numerous biblical examples of this. And every time, God always defends and celebrates extravagant worship and prayer in the Bible every single time. And nearly every single time, there's some kind of pushback from somebody else against it, but God defends it and celebrates it nearly every time. I'll give you a couple quick examples. Exodus 33 Moses and Joshua. Joshua has, uh, Moses has this tent of meeting. They're, they're building the tabernacle. They haven't got it set up yet. Moses goes ahead and sets up this little tent where he goes and talks to God face to face. You guys know that story? And Joshua, his assistant, goes with him. And Moses leaves the tent, but it says Joshua stayed. Joshua stayed. That's a picture of extravagant worship. It's what if we stayed? What if we went a little bit longer? What if, we get, what if we just said a little bit more? What if we spent a little more time with him? Um, and Joshua was given the leadership of the next generation, the one who stayed, the one who stayed in the presence of God. Um, Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, we don't have to go there, but you guys know that story, right? Martha's busy working, laboring. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his voice. And again, there's accusation, right? Martha that spirit comes again. What are you doing sitting there, sitting at the feet of Jesus? There's work to be done. Come on. And Jesus said, only one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the better part. Only one thing is needed, and she's chosen the better part. Jesus defends it just like he did with the alabaster as the enemy comes against it. God always defends expression of uh, extravagant worship and prayer. And one of my favorite is the story of King David, that's what I wrote my book about. <laughs> but David is, come, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This is when he, beca- when he unites the kingdom together to uh, rule and reign in Jerusalem for, for 33 years. And they're bringing the Ark in. There's this big parade in, into Jerusalem. And the Ark was where the presence of God rested, right? So this is God's manifest presence in their day. And they're bringing God, so to speak, in, into their city, and it says every six steps, they offered animal sacrifices along the way, leading, leading up, and it's miles, I don't remember how many miles, it's in my book, <laughs> but every, there's miles of every six steps, slaughtering an animal, every six steps, like, that's a lot, and it's bloody, and it was messy, and there was this trail of blood leading up, up Mount Zion, beautiful picture of Jesus in that as he went up the mountain as well. Um, to die on the cross for us, but but David had this this revelation of the value 
of the Lord. And he started dancing. If you know the story, right, he's like puts on this priestly garment and he's dancing, celebrating God's coming into our city. And his, the accusation came from his wife. Sometimes that's where the, the, the accusation comes from is those closest to us, and that's really hard. But his own, his own wife came and said, what are you doing? You're supposed to be the king. You're acting like a priest, and you're acting like a normal person, just, you know, like the slave girls is what she said. Those just out dancing in the street before the Lord, and he says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But David was an extravagant, radical worshiper. Uh, when, he, when he brought the ark into his city, he set up a tent. They called it David's Tabernacle. That's what my book, the title of my book comes from. He set up a tent, and then they hired musicians and singers full-time, the Levites. They paid them just to be there and, and worship God, not to lead the people in worship, but to minister to God. Their, their role was priestly. They were, they were singing, praising, prophesying before the ark, before the presence of God. And by the time David's reign was over, they had trained up 4,000 musicians and singers. That's crazy. Talk about extravagant worship. An army of 4,000 musicians and singers that David had trained up. And by the time he passes all this off to his son Solomon, uh, they take up an offering. And it's the equivalent of like a billion dollars worth of gold and supplies and money that they collect for what? For worship. For, minute, for hosting the presence of God in their city uh, and, in, and in their nation. And, um, and so David was an extravagant worshiper, and the Lord actually honored David in a number of ways, but by making a covenant with him that your son's going to sit on the throne. And Jesus came, came through the line of David and was called the son of David. And uh, so the Lord always defends these extravagant expressions of worship. Um, Jesus said, it's a beautiful thing to me. He said, there's only one thing that's needed. I will become even more undignified than this. And, um, and so I encourage you guys in your extravagant worship and your pursuit of the presence of God. Jesus loves it. He finds it beautiful. And like I said, it's wise. And I just, I'll just mention this too, because I just feel stirred to, to say it. The money thing, like if you're a part of this church, I encourage you to give generously. And I, they had, no one said to, for me to say this. I just feel like I should just say it. Like if you're gleaning and receiving, if you're a part of this community, give generously. Because I know what's in some of their hearts to do if, if, if more money, money came in. And I know at least part of that would be more ministry to the Lord and, and, and worship and prayer. Some of it's for the youth, like they talked about, you know, so that they can encounter God and like, so I just encourage you, a, a, a church, a ministry that's saying we want to be extravagant worshipers, like that's a great place to give money. So anyway, that's my little plug. Nobody told me to say that other than Jesus. So, All right, so uh, number two, um, I want to confront the lie that intercessory prayer is striving. That intercessory prayer is striving. So the truth is, that intercession is partnership with God in prayer. True biblical intercessory prayer. And so intercession is when we pray for others. That's just kind of a simple definition. Intercessory prayer, I mean, when, we're, when we're, we sit here, but we pray for our family, we pray for our friends, we pray for our city, we pray for our nation, we pray for the lost, we pray for justice, we pray for all these different things. And so the enemy would love to shut down those kinds of prayers um, and, and what 
one of the ways he does that is by saying that that kind of prayer is striving. And so what I mean by striving is I mean that the idea that in prayer we're trying to earn something from God. And that we're trying to uh, twist God's arm, right? Like, like oh, if, if we just if we just kind of muscle it, right, we can just kind of twist God's arm and, you know, God will pour out his spirit in Atlanta and we'll be in full-blown historic revival, you know, like if we could just muster it up in our own strength and talk God into it, <laughs> which is just a ridiculous thought, right? Um, so so here's, here's how I think of intercessory prayer. Uh, I have a seven-year-old son. He's, he's our youngest. We have four kids. Uh, seven, nine, 11, 13. And our youngest, our oldest three are girls. Our youngest is a boy. And so he loves to help me, right? He loves to be around me and be a part of whatever I'm doing. And so like I envision, okay, I need to go. There's a leak under our sink, right? At our house. Okay. So there's a, I need to go, go under there and tighten it up and figure out how to deal with this, uh, leak under, under our sink. And so Gabriel, our seven-year-old wants to help me. So I go, okay, buddy, here, we carry the tools in here with me, right? So we go in the kitchen, get under there, you know, I figure out what's going on. Here, hand, hand me the pliers so I can tighten it up. And so he hands me the pliers. Here, hold the flashlight, right? That's kind of the classic joke. It's like, hold the flashlight for the dad so that he can see what he's doing. And so I tighten it up, and then he go, put it back in the toolbox. So, all right, Gabe, we did it together, buddy. <laughs> right? And so, like, I could have done it myself, and I probably could have done it quicker, Right, right. Even if if he wasn't a part of it with me, but what? But why would I want to include him in that? Not because I need his help per se, um, but mainly because I want him to do it with me, and I want him to be there with me. And so this is what intercessory prayer is like. It's it's God saying, "There's things I want to do in your life, in this city, in this nation, in the nations of the earth, and I want to include you in it." I don't need you. God can do whatever he wants, right? God can snap his finger and whatever. But why is it not all happening right now? Because he's choosing to, in his love for us, include us and do it through the church, move through his people to accomplish his purposes on the earth. He does want to bring his kingdom come and his will done more and more and more on the earth, but he's going to do it through us. And one of the ways he does that is through prayer. That's why he said, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because that's step one in seeing the kingdom come is that we agree with that and say, yes, Lord, do that. And so, um, you know, somebody said once that intercessory prayer is just telling God what he tells you to tell him. (laughs) Telling God what he tells you to tell him, which seems so silly, right? It's like, why why should we have to do that? It's because he loves us and wants to include us in that. In that and wants to partner with us in prayer. It's not us twisting God's arm to accomplish something, but it's us partnering with what He wants to do with His Word, with His ideas, with what His Holy Spirit is doing, and co laboring with Him in prayer and in obedience in what we do and what you guys are doing as you're going out and praying for people and ministering to people in your workplaces and all that. But, but a, one dimension of that that sometimes gets neglected is prayer, is intercessory prayer. And I believe that uh, this is what God desires for us. So uh, Psalm 2, and I I think Stephen mentioned this last week. So I know he talked about prayer and worship some last week. So if this is double, then yay. (laughs) You get more. And it's just, you know, maybe you needed to hear it double. So 
so Psalm 2 is, uh, is this beautiful psalm. I'm not going to get into it. But you get a glimpse of God talking to God here in Psalms 2.8. So this is cool. <laughs> God the Father talking to God the Son. And uh, this is what he says. This is, this is the, the interaction between the Father and the Son. He says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Or ask of the nations, I'll, or ask of me and I'll give you the nations. This is crazy. <laughs> this is a wild verse that God the Father tells the Son. This is what I just said, right? Tell God what he tells you to tell him. This is God the Father telling the Son to tell the Father, give me the nations. Like, this seems almost like a waste, right? It seems like redundant. Like, why are we asking you to ask you to ask you to ask you to do this? Because this is what God's like. <laughs> because God is relational. Because God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in himself, love, community. He is a, God is a house of prayer, right? God talking to God in himself. This is what he's like, and he's inviting us to be a part of the conversation. What an honor that we get to pray, that we get to be in his presence, that we get to know him. This is amazing. He's saying, this is what's happening in me, in my heart, this interaction we're dreaming, we're, we're scheming. If you could say that God's praying to God, I know you, it doesn't quite work. But you understand what I'm saying, right? There's this interaction happening in God himself. It's like it blows our minds. It's like how do you even articulate what this is? But whatever that is, God's inviting us into that fellowship with him. This is amazing. And, and he's saying, hey, look, there's things I want to do, and I want to tell you about them, and I want to show them to you. And then I want you to talk to me about them, and you're going to see my power released. And then I'm going to lead you out to be a part of it, to be the answer to your own prayer. So I want to encourage you to ask. Don't be afraid of asking. Asking is not striving. Asking when it's God's will and his word is partnership with him. And, and he, he encourages us to do this. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock in Luke 11. He says clearly, and the Father says to the Son, ask, and I'll give you give you the nations. Don't just declare things. Don't just decree and declare things, but don't be afraid to ask. I encourage you. Intercession it does, is not supposed to be striving. We're not trying to talk God into it, but he's inviting you. He's saying, hey, I want to do this. Ask me for it, and let's do it. That's what his word says. <laughs> Paul encourages intercession, 1 Timothy 2.1. And I want to encourage you guys to uh, to engage in intercession. Ask God for what he tells you to ask him for. The key in, in it not being striving and it, and it being partnership is that it flows out of intimacy with him. That is the key. So there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah 62. You don't have to go there, but if you want to write down verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. Verse 7 is a prophecy. It says, uh, I will set watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never cease to cry out day and night. So it's this prophecy about prayer, these intercessors called watchmen who are going to pray day and night. But then the verse right before that tells you how those watchmen got there. And it says, uh, as a groom rejoices for his bride, so I rejoice over you. And then he says, I've set watchmen on your wall. So he's saying, look, before you start standing on the wall of intercession, I'm going to draw you into my presence with love and intimacy. 
you're going to know who you are as sons and daughters, and you're going to know that I'm your bridegroom, that I'm pursuing you, that I love you, and that I want to partner with you like a bride and a bridegroom partners together, right? That's what the New Testament teaches, that we're like the bride of Christ as God's people and that Jesus is the bridegroom. We need a revelation of that. That's partnership. When you get married, I've been married now 15 years, like that's, you got to bring your houses together. You got to bring your schedules together. You got to bring your finances together. And you get, and then when you have kids, you got to figure out how to do this project called raising kids together. And it's like, talk about intimate partnership. Like, like intimacy isn't just the sensual part of the relationship, right? It's, it's sharing everything together. It's walking together as one in unity. That's what God wants with us. That's what he's desiring for his church is that we would be his bride and that he would be a bridegroom, that we would, we would draw near to him. And then the overflow of that would be uh, intercession. Another way to think of this is just like, well, I mean, in my experience, I, I, I'm a worship guy. So I'm a worship leader. That, that's kind of my default mode is like, let's just worship. <laughs> but what I found is as I pursued God in worship, spending time with him just in the secret place, even in corporate worship, uh, things started growing in my heart. And And I realized in the place of intimacy, God was dropping these seeds in my heart, like my heart was becoming like a womb. Um, and there were these things growing in me, and they were the dreams of God. They were his purposes. They were his desires growing in me. And I started going, oh, my gosh, I'm like carrying something in my heart uh, for my city. Like, what? I wasn't thinking about my city. I was thinking about my life and my calling and my purpose and my identity. But all of a sudden, God's put something in me that's bigger than me, and it's like, oh, my gosh, my city. Okay, wow, I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. Oh, my gosh. The issue of abortion, I hadn't thought about that, but all of a sudden I'm crying about the unborn in the secret place here. What's going on? Oh, my gosh. All of a sudden poverty and racism. and Oh, no, the, the nations. Now I'm thinking about these unreached people groups over on the other side of the world that have never heard Jesus. And there's this stuff that because God loves these people and God hates injustice, right? And because, because God loves the lost, there's something that his desire starts growing in me from this place of intercession and it's like, uh, it's like growing in, in my heart. And, and the birthing process is called intercessory prayer. <laughs> it's called partnership with God for his purposes in the earth. And many times, some of those things you'll just carry is pray, in prayer. And many times he'll end up leading you to engage in practical ways over those things as well. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says that we are co-laborers with Christ. So that's what I'm talking about. We're co-laborers, partners with God in prayer and in action. Both of those together. We're, we're doing things with God, not for God, right? That's the difference between doing it religiously versus doing it in partnership and love with him. Does that make sense? All right. So those, those are two big ones. <laughs> Number three, and uh, I think the, these I can go through a little bit quicker. So... Uh, the third one, uh, prayer should always be private. Uh, the truth is, in our Western Americanized culture, we tend to think very individualistically about everything, right? Everything's about us. And so 
We don't realize it, but many times in our approach to Christianity and our approach to following Jesus, it's about us and Jesus. Uh, and the New Testament paradigm, if we think about, if we allow the Word of God to be the Word of God and we look at it honestly, we realize they weren't thinking that way in the early church. They weren't thinking that way in the New Testament. We read a verse and we go, oh yeah, this is for me. And sometimes it is, and that's, that's great. And we do have to personally respond to Jesus. We're responsible in our own hearts to say yes to him. But when you say yes to following him and you put your faith in Christ and you become a Christian, you're saying yes to the church. <laughs> you're saying yes to community, to the body of Christ. When you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to his body, which is us, me. Sorry, Stephen. It's, it's the person that annoys you that also follows Jesus. You know, like we say yes to each other. And, uh, and so, so much of how we approach uh, our faith many times is individual. You know, it's about us and what we're called to do and, and this kind of thing. And, and I believe so much of what he's called us to do is supposed to actually be worked out in community. It's with others. And the many, many times we feel the weight of, okay, I, gotta, I should pray more. I should read my Bible more. I should read the gospel more. I got to pray for, pray for people more. I got to do this more. I got to do this more. And it's like, it's like, well, you don't necessarily, but we do, yes. We do, and I'm not real good at certain things, and, and certain things are hard, but my buddy's real good at them, and then I get around him, and I go, oh, yeah, well, okay, you know, evangelism's kind of awkward for me, but I'll go out with you, and, and then that's a little easier, or, you know, prayers, kinda, I don't do prayer very good, but I'm going to go to the prayer meeting, and then the people that are a little more excited about prayer, I kind of get caught up in that, and then I find myself praying more than I would have if I was just trying to do it on my own, you know what I'm saying? And so... Uh, the truth is that Christianity is, is meant to happen in community, and prayer is one of those. Um, corporate prayer, praying together, when I say corporate prayer, I mean praying together, that was the, that was the norm in the New Testament. God's people pray together uh, all the time. Uh, the church started in the upper room, Acts 1.14. So these were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. There, there it goes. The, these... All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is how the church started. They were together and they were praying. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. So a lot of, a lot of the messages about prayer are primarily like, you go, go pray in, when no one else is looking. Go do it. You should do it. No, really. Go pray. You. You know. And, uh, and yes, you should. <laughs> That's good. Go to the secret place. Cultivate that private, personal time with the Lord. That's really important. Uh, but the New Testament, they were praying together a lot. I mean, if you read the book of Acts uh, and you begin to see it, you go, oh my gosh, the upper room wasn't just the starting point, but it was a prototype for the rhythms of the church. And so you see them going out and you see them coming back in to pray. You see them going out, coming back in. There were these rhythms of the New Testament church. Uh, and so I want to encourage you to pray with other people. If you go, okay, I, uh, you're encouraging us to pray. Stephen's telling us to pray. Uh, if you find it hard or, or whatever, I encourage you to do it with some other people. Do it in the home groups. Do it with a couple of friends. Find a time, you know, that you can get together with some people and pursue, pursue the Lord together. Don't try to do it on your own. You know, when you read through the epistles, the, you know, the, the letters in the New Testament. You've got Paul, Peter, 
John, these guys are writing letters, but they're not writing them to you or to me. They're writing them to churches. They're writing them to groups. And so these communities were getting these letters, and then they were, re- they were trying to obey them as a people of God, not just, you know, okay, now we've all read it out loud, and now everybody go try to do all those things on your own. But they were, they were doing it together. So all these exhortations like, Pray without ceasing, <laughs> you know, or be anxious for nothing but pray. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Like th- th- these were written to churches to embrace together as the people of God. And, and we just immediately try to just take them on as our own uh, personal thing. Does that make sense? So uh, prayer is not just to be a private thing. It can be and it should be. But we are called to be a praying people. And I know those of you who are astute and well studied in the scripture are going to probably go, yeah, but Matthew, Jesus said, when you pray, go to the secret place. Amen. <laughs> Let's look at that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. And um, are you guys okay? On, as, she said I could take as much time as I needed. So <laughs> I'll, I, I'm not going to take as long on each one. This this. all right so Matthew chapter 6 that's where this comes from Uh, verse 5 Jesus says when you pray you must not be like the hypocrites they love to stand in the pray in the synagogues on the street corners that they could be seen by others I say to you they've received the reward but when you pray go into your room shut the door pray to the father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, when you have what appears to be a contradiction in Scripture, where you have corporate prayer happening in Acts and encouragements to pray together, and then you have Jesus seemingly saying, when you pray, go pray in private, you have to go, okay, Help me to reconcile these. Help me to understand the context of what's going on. And what's clear is Jesus is not saying you shouldn't pray with other people. <laughs> that's, that's clear. Jesus is not confronting corporate prayer. He's front, confronting hypocritical prayer. He's not saying, and, and in fact, look at the next verse. At the end, I, I finished at verse 8. And then what does verse 9 say? Then pray like this, our Father. Not my Father, by the way. Our Father. He's saying, go to secret place, but then when you pray, pray our Father, that it's us together uh, pursuing the Lord. So Jesus is not confronting um, the idea of praying with other people. He's confronting the hypocrisy of wanting to be seen in front of other people and uh, wanting to appear more spiritual than, than you are. He was confronting the religiosity of the Pharisees. Does that make sense? All right, which... This, this touches on, on my next point here, which is, and I'll, I'll just mention these real quick. Repetition is religious. <laughs> so thankfully, you guys don't seem to, to feel that way with worship, which is great, because we'll just, holy is the Lord God, holy is the Lord God, and that's what they're singing in heaven, right? We sing a number of songs with, with that passage today, Revelation 4, holy, 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 and uh, that's what they're doing in heaven. It says nonstop, so 
They're a little bit repetitious in heaven with their worship. Um, but Jesus here, he, he comments on this. He says, verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. And in, in New King James Version, it actually says vain repetition. Do not offer vain repetition. So the, uh, the lie is that being repetitive in our prayers, saying, praying the same thing, singing the same thing over and over and over is, is religious or striving. The truth is that it it's actually can be an expression of our faith in a doorway into encounter with God. So again, Jesus is not, uh, he's not conf- saying you shouldn't repeat yourself. He's saying vain repetition. Or I love this in the ESV where it says, don't heap up empty phrases. Empty phrases. I love that. So there is a way to pray religiously where we're, we're trying to impress God or we're trying to impress others. And it's not about that intimate partnership with him. And we're not speaking his word. But if God gives a promise, if God has something he wants to do, something he's spoken over your life, something he's spoken in his word that's in his heart, we can cling to that word and stick with it and we can ask and we can seek and we can knock and we can pray and we can position our lives in partnership with him until we see the fulfillment of that thing in our lives. And that's not vain repetition. That's faith in his word that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. So repetition can be an expression of of our faith and it does not have to be religious and um, so, so repetition can be good, and um, there's more I could say about that, but I'll just, I'll just drop that and leave it there. So the, the fifth one here, I just want to expose too much worship and prayer hinders evangelism. Um, I will, uh, I'll use a, a story and, and not go into full teaching mode on this one. I got to go to uh, Germany uh, last summer, which was awesome, Herrenhut, Germany. Yeah, I can't say it right, so I just say it the American Southern way. But Herrenhut, Germany was uh, founded by the Moravian Christians in the 1700s, and uh, and it it became a uh, place of refuge for Christians who were being persecuted. So all these different denominations came together that grew to three or four hundred people in this community. They were all bickering because they were from different denominations and and church backgrounds. But God came and poured out his spirit during a communion service, and they had a revival, and they began reconciling and healing, um, you know, their relationships with one another. There was this guy named Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf, who was the leader of this, this whole community. And out of that, they began praying, and they began praying 24 hours a day. They had two people at a time for an hour each. And they prayed 24 hours a day for over 100 years. From generation to generation, they kept this watch. The word Herrenhut actually means watch of the Lord. And so uh, they kept this 100-plus year prayer meeting happening. And out of that community, three or 400 people in Germany, uh, you say, oh, too much worship and prayer. That's going to that's gonna hinder evangelism and missions. They started sending out missionaries. They had missionaries from the Moravian community that sold themselves into slavery so that they could share the gospel with the slaves, knowing that they, their lives were over, that they'd be slaves for the rest of their lives. Um, they would have, they would, they especially went to the hardest, darkest places. Some of, the, some of them got their 
caskets shipped with them when they would get on the boats to go to these places because they didn't think that they would probably survive. But they wanted to go and share the good news of Jesus. They were fascinated with Jesus, in love with Jesus, abandoned to him. Whatever he said, they wanted to do it. They wanted to follow him. And this little community of three or 400 people, within a few decades, they had sent out more missionaries than all of Europe had sent out like 100 years before that. And uh, it was an amazing move of God. And some of them came to, to the U.S., to different places. And so I got to, got to be there on the 300th anniversary of when that community started, of, of when they first chopped the first tree, which is the date they used to say this is when Heron Hut started. And we were there on the 300th anniversary. And there was this little community there called the Jesus House, uh, which has is, which is got a prayer room and they're, they're a missions base. And people kind of come and stay there. And that's where we stayed. And they had found this old bell that was a part of Heron Hut years, like hundreds of years ago. And they thought it was, had been lost and they found it. And they were hanging it up on their missions base. And, uh, and they hung it up last year, and the, we, we had this night of worship, and this o- older lady who was, her husband founded this mission space, she stood up and began to prophesy, and she said, this bell is a bell of awakening. And she told a story about how in the 90s, uh, the prophet James Gall had come to Heron Hut and had prophesied and said, God's going to start raising up places of 24-hour prayer all over the world, like they're going to carry the spirit of the Moravians, and they're going to love prayer, and they're going to love missions, and they're going to give their lives to, for everyone to hear the gospel of Jesus. And, uh, and over the last 25 years, 20, the idea of 24-hour prayer has exploded all over the world. So that prophecy was true, but she stood up and said, uh, he prophesied that there would be houses of prayer. She said, God's ringing the bell of the awakening for the entire church. And, the, and, and God's going to release the spirit of the Moravians into the body of Christ. And they're going to pursue me. They're going to be passionate in prayer and worship. And they're going to be zealous to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And, um, and so I believe that spirit of the Moravians uh, is, is something God's wanting to bring into his church. So rather than hindering evangelism, worship and prayer actually fuels evangelism, missions, the advancement of the gospel and God's kingdom into the earth. Um, and Jesus said, the harvest is great, labors are few, therefore pray. The Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers. The harvest is great, the labors are few, therefore pray. And God's going to send out laborers, but the first step is pray. So John Piper says, worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. I love that. So rather than hindering it, um, Jesus loves people, guys. (laughs) Jesus really, really loves people. And if we really spend time with him, like we're going to we're going to get we're going to get stirred in intercession and we're going to get sent on assignment on mission because he loves people. You're not going to spend so much time with Jesus and then like love people less. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, oh, they've been worshiping and praying. They're not really loving people well anymore because they're just all worshiping. It's like, then they're not worshiping and praying. You know what I mean? It's like, if you spend time with Jesus, he loves the lost. He loves the hurting. He loves the broken. More than we, way more than we do, right? And so uh, I think of it like a slingshot, man. It's like, as you, pre- like you press into Jesus, it's like pressing into the slingshot and the tension's growing 
and he's going to, just a matter of time. And we don't have to worry about where the, where, where the direction is. We just press into Jesus, obey him, follow him from the place of his presence, from the place of prayer. He'll lead us and guide us and um, help us. So, yeah, those, those, are, those are the five lies. Thank you for your patience as I work through them. Um, this is the first time I've gotten to, to really begin to try to unpack this. I'll probably end up writing, writing some about this. But, yeah, I would love to, love to pray for you guys. Yeah. Um, Stephen, you can come up if you want. We'll just, is that okay? Can we take a moment to just respond? Well, I am. <laughs> but uh, would you, you guys can stand up. I, um, yeah, I would love any of us, if there was some of, one of those lies that you feel like you've been, you know, tormented by or, or the Lord, uh, I mean, the enemy's brought to your mind that the Lord wants to expose today. I uh, would love for you just, you know, to take a moment. I mean, we repent, right? Repent just means change our mind. We turn away from the lies and we believe the truth of God's word um, as, I, as I tried to bring that today. And, uh, and so for any of us, I think there's just a, just a moment we can just pause and just um, accept whatever the truth is that the Lord wants to bring to our hearts today. Um, but I did feel like, uh, I did feel like God, God said that I should pray for the extravagant ones. And um, so I feel like specifically with this idea of extravagant worship and prayer, I know that there's a sense in which you guys are an extravagantly worshiping community, but I feel like for some of you that um, there's an invitation. You're kind of in a, in a time where God's either recently uh, invited you to um, kind of go deeper or you're just feeling the tug even as I'm sharing this morning. And uh, specifically where there's like something practical where God's stirring you. He's saying like, wake up earlier, <laughs> spend some time with me in the morning or... Um, you know, do something with, 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 there's some kind of assignment related to worship and prayer or just an invitation. You just feel that stirring. Maybe you don't even know exactly what it is, but I did feel like there was at least some of you that, that, you, that, that idea of extravagance, that like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, David, you know, just this wild worship, this kind of in your heart, like this zeal in your heart for more. Um, and I, I, if, I may not be saying it right, but I don't feel like it's everybody in the room. So I just, <laughs> I could be, but I really think it's just maybe maybe some of you just have this thing in your heart where you go, ah, like something in my heart really stirs for this extravagance. And I feel like God's inviting me to more. And so I would love for you, if that's you, I'd love for you to come up now, if you don't mind. And I'd love to just um, just quickly lay hands on you and pray over you. While I pray for them, the rest of you, just right where you are, you can just pray. You know, if it, if if, um, if there were some of those those lies you believed, you can just ha- you guys just take some space right where you are. If you want to close your eyes, or you want to get on your knees, or you just want to pray, um, Lord, we love you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for these that you're stirring, that you're drawing in a, in a unique way.